Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to Time to Exhale. I'm your host, Diana Beckman, founder of Exhale Therapy. Life is so many things, busy but beautiful, exhausting yet exhilarating, messy but also meaningful. And sometimes the one thing that makes it all better is knowing that you're not alone. Your mental wellness is of most importance and having the hard conversations are just as vital as the easy ones. Join us as we search for ways to lead a life of fulfillment and passion while finding our most happiest, truthful selves. This is your time to exhale. Joining us today is Teresa Smith. Teresa is a counselor here at Exhale Therapy who specializes in individuals, couples, and family counseling. Today, my co-host Sinead and I will be discussing the Black Lives Matter movement with Teresa and learning more about her experiences with racial inequality and how this surfaces in the field of mental health. Thanks so much for joining us today, Teresa. Happy to be here. (laughs) Did you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Teresa Smith. Um, Just to locate myself, I'm a cisgender, biracial Canadian woman. My pronouns are she, her. I've recently graduated from the Couple and Family Therapy Master's program at the University of Guelph. And so I'm just beginning my career at Exhale Therapy. Just found out yesterday. (laughs) So I'm pretty excited. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so that's a little bit about me. Thank you. So, I mean, I suppose we can, we can just jump right into some questions here. Obviously, right now, we're hearing a lot in the media about the Black Lives Matter movement. I know that it, it didn't start just now, but we're mm-hmm. hearing about it. So, curious if you could give us a little bit more of a background. Right. So, the Black Lives Matter movement started in around 2013 in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murderer. So, I don't, for people who don't know, Definitely Google it. But also uh, Trayvon Martin was a teenager who was racially profiled by a neighbor of his relative, was assumed to be doing criminal things in the neighborhood and ultimately was murdered unjustly. And so the Black Lives Matter movement was started in response to that, as well as the countless other deaths at the hands of police and black lives lost at the hands of police. So that's how it sort of began. And then it has gained momentum, again, as we've seen more and more violence uh, throughout the years. Just to name a few, I think it's always important to name the indiv- some of the individuals whose lives were lost. Breonna Taylor, Tamir Rice, George Floyd, Sandra Bland, Eric Garner, Ahmaud Aubrey, just to name a few. And so, yeah, so now it's an organization that continues to advocate and be a presence for black lives and to bring awareness to the violence against black lives in America and around the world. To me, and I think to a lot of other people, it just is a presence and a a strong example of black resistance and resilience. I mean, yeah, it means so, so many things. So, Teresa, I'm just curious, you know, I personally, I live somewhere else um, in another country, and we've seen a lot of rallies that are taking place around the world. World. And one of the comments that I've heard is people are questioning why this would be happening, rallies would be happening in Europe or be happening in South America or wherever the case may be in Canada even, because people are saying, yeah, but this didn't happen in, or you don't live in the States, so you're not affected the same way. Why are we doing the rallies? What would be your response to something like that? Mm-hmm. I think my response would be the importance of allyship. First and foremost, white people standing in allyship with black lives, with Indigenous lives, people of color, I think that's so important, especially given that white people are the majority and hold so much power in this world. So being able to show that support and using their privilege to sort of lift the voices of black people and indigenous people, I think is invaluable. I think a lot of the work needs to be done by white people. As much as we feel like it's a black issue, 
or that sort of thing. Uh, we know that black people aren't listened to as much. We know that people of color aren't listened to as much. So if these are the things that you believe to be vocal about them. Mm-hmm. And then we can also sort of think about colonialism and slavery in Europe and all of those things. Like other countries have had their own history of oppressing people of color and indigenous people. And no one is exempt from benefiting uh, from the sort of oppression of people of color. So I think it's just as important for other countries and places around the world where it doesn't seem that evident that that took place to definitely step up and support. I mean, Canada even, I think a lot of people like to look to the U.S. and and say, well, we're not that bad. Mm -hmm. But there's huge injustice in Canada. We know, especially with um, Indigenous folks. And then recently I was listening to a CBC podcast um, on their Ideas series. I can't remember, but it's, it's the title is something... Um, about Canada's hidden uh, slavery. Mm -hmm. It was violent here. It was awful here. It was just awful people who were enslaved faced in Canada. And we don't really, it's definitely something that's been very much erased. I mean, I'm pretty sure in my my education, I never learned about Canadians, uh, the, the history of slavery in Canada. And so to hear about it in that podcast, in that way, it was just like, okay, this is, we can't deny this. It can't be denied. And it's archived. You know, it's one thing to ignore the voices of black people like we've, like, like society has done for ages, but there's ads archived of slave owners offering rewards for missing slaves. So we see that the resistance and the resilience of black people even back then, and that can't be erased. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important for all of us to wake up a bit and sort of see our complicity and how, and, and sort of our part and our country's part in that. Absolutely. Yeah. And you had mentioned that it's more important now than ever for white people to use their voice, I guess, help make changes moving forward. What are some ways you'd you'd suggest for individuals to be an ally and how they can go ahead with that? So I'd say probably the most important thing that anybody who's looking to be an ally um, and to learn more would just be to Google it. I would say like we have this huge resource, the internet and, (laughs) and libraries that have so much information about black history and white privilege and the experiences of black people and kind of what you can do. And I think if you watch the news and you feel uncomfortable and there's something sitting with you, just look it up and see what you can understand. Like as much as protesting and showing on Facebook is so important and being vocal, the inner work is like just that much more. It's so valuable. So to be able to take the time to Google and just do your own part, like that means as a person of color, that means the world. And I think, you know, fear can be really sort of paralyzing. I definitely, as a mixed race person, having white heritage, um, have a lot of my life felt powerless and, and, and frozen and kind of like, I don't know, I don't belong in this. Like, I, what should what should I do? Because I'm, as a lighter skinned individual, I benefit from, you know, as a lot of uh, black scholars call it, like a palatable version of blackness. So I do receive extra privileges in life because of that. And um, I often felt just afraid. I didn't know what to do. And, um, you know, I've been sort of working towards this throughout my academic career um, to sort of chip away at my own experience. But really, for me, what happened with George Floyd and the response from that has just like sort of changed my world. And it opened my eyes to what I need to do as an individual to um, get to know this the history of, of black people on my own and what I need to do to be a good ally um, and sort of not put that that burden on black people. Because I don't know if you've heard of the term the double burden, which is where minorities are discriminated against. Um, and so face that burden and then also have to face the burden of explaining their suffering to the mm-hmm. people who are inflicting the pain. Mm-hmm. And that's a ton of emotional labor. So it's really crucial not to put that labor on 
uh, people of color to say, like, teach me. I mean, obviously, we have people in our lives. I'm lo- I love to have those conversations okay. with people in my, li- my life. So if you have people in your life who may be, um, there may be people in your life who are open to that. But perhaps you're the one that extends the, br- the olive branch or like sort of instigates the conversation or says, um, like, I'm thinking of you. I have no idea what you're going through. Mm-hmm. Um, if you ever want to have a conversation with me about our relationship, I would love to do that. But it's important not to put some more sort of... Um, strain and trauma. So yeah, definitely doing your own research is so important. And thinking for yourself is so important. And sitting with yourself and having reflective conversations about what it really means to you to um, see people suffer in the way that we're seeing. And then a lot of Black authors and artists have put together a ton of resources out there. I would say Instagram and Facebook uh, have been so instrumental in my learning Mm -hmm. throughout these last couple of months. I have two professors, I'll just shout them out, Dr. Carla Rice and Dr. <laughs> Ruth Neustifter, who uh, way before this have always, I don't want to say like sort of spam their feed with, they po- they see an article that they read, they relate to it, they think it's important, they post it, they mm-hmm. write a, they write some information on it if they feel like they should. Um, and to me, I thought, what a like cool way to be an activist in this time where we're sort of limited and at home, like what can I do? Well, I can make sure everybody in my friends group on Facebook knows that these are the things I'm thinking about. And maybe they want to share them. Maybe they want to have a conversation about them. And then um, Instagram, I got Instagram a week before this happened. And I was like, well, this will come. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, oh, what a fun way to kind of explore. And like, and then I was like, oh my gosh, like, look at all of these black creators sharing everything and putting this out there for us, how to be an ally, how to reach out to friends um, who might be suffering right now. Here's resources you can donate to, Black-owned businesses you can support. There's so much out there. And if you just go, like, one person in particular, Layla, Layla Saad, she's wonderful. She has a book, a workbook called Me and White Supremacy uh, that my partner and I are doing. And it's a reflective workbook where you learn about white supremacy, white privilege, and your unique relationship with it. And it's not meant to be completely intellectual. It's supposed to be sort of what's coming up for me right now mm-hmm. and what ways in my everyday life do I benefit from white privilege it's hard work but it's it's really an eye-opening and really helpful so if you check out people like her they often also tag other um, black authors and black creators and it's sort of like it's really like you just go down kind of you know like a youtube rabbit hole it's like you (laughs) you just start and then before you know it you've read so much and you're there's so many interesting ways you can look at this issue so and i think I, i would really agree with you about the instagram aspect of it simply for the fact i know myself these are conversations that I have a lot when I'm in college and um, we're very, I think, very aware just in the program that I'm in. But I think that one of the things that can be really hard for people is that a lot of the material that, say, you're going to look at in a classroom isn't very accessible in terms of language for other people. And I know even for myself, I'll read things and like, I recognize that there's value there, but I don't know, I struggle to understand what's being said and, you know, depending on how dense and and in depth the text is, I don't always find it accessible. So I think that Instagram is a really great option, like you said, to give you different workbooks or give you different authors who just the language that they use is going to be a little more accessible to everybody so that they can understand it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I definitely say that. Like my partner, and I have talked about this before, he's doing his PhD and he really appreciates sort of journals and scholarly work. And that's that is amazing. Mm-hmm 
huge piece of the puzzle, right? And where, you know, academia is sort of full of uh, discrimination and oppression and erasure of Black and Indigenous voices. So sharing those articles is so important. But I do think there's a side of things where people kind of um, would appreciate just a little bit more accessibility. I know I definitely love things that are a little, just a little bit more everyday language and kind of grasp the experience of like what we do in our everyday, you know, that's really important, I think, as well. So, so yeah, Instagram's wonderful for that, yeah, for sure. I'm curious. I mean, obviously, we're seeing a lot on Instagram when there was, was it Tuesday? I forget what day it was when there was Blackout Tuesday and that was happening. And it seemed like for a period of time, I know for myself, I was seeing on my feed, there was a lot of posts being done about the movement, which was fantastic. But I think with a lot of different movements, you slowly start to see that inertia just slow down and I'm curious what do you think some of the ways are that we can keep that going so it's not a case of like people forgetting this wasn't a one-time thing it wasn't you know it's not one day of protesting and now we've settled things that's not the case at all so how can we keep that going uh definitely just keep sharing like I love the say her name say their names kind of campaign if they pop in your head post about them and just maybe make it a regular thing to every day post one thing supporting black lives matter or a black artist or a black cre- uh, creator um so really just making it a routine in your own life you kind of just have to do it you know what I mean like it's there's always like a bit of a it's hard to sort of make a new habit but this is I think the more you kind of um in uh, sort of like investigate, explore these things, the more that you'll feel like, oh my gosh, here it is in my world and I'm feeling it and I need to post this or I need to make sure that this is my, this is present. And then I also think having conversations frequently with people in your life, family members, friends, your professors, employers, opening that dialogue and just having the conversation and keeping it top of mind. Yeah, in those sort of ways, I think those are really important to sort of keeping that ongoing discussion happening. Obviously, you mentioned that individual efforts are a crucial part of this movement, but I'm also curious what kind of changes you would recommend for an organization to make. Mm-hmm. That's a this is a tough one because I think so many organizations have like have that structural kind of oppression kind of built right in. I would imagine it's important to like as an employer to be the first to extend that, right? Because I've worked for a company being one of two people of color out of maybe like a hundred or something like that, and. It's, it can be really exhausting to be the only person advocating or to only really have your, your opinion asked for or your presence asked for if they need diversity in a video. So just being sure to extend a hand to people of color in your, in your business and ask what's the best way that we should be tackling this. Or because or, again, I don't want to sort of like put the burden again on people of color, but do your, do your own research as an employer, see what other businesses are doing that are sort of uh, really doing well at inclusion and, and diversity. And it, it is a tough one, I think, for businesses, because it's hard not to feel like everybody's jumping on the bang, bandwagon. I think it's best just to start and then keep doing the changes that are going to make a difference. And then people will begin to trust you, your employees will begin to trust you. I think you really have to invest in this work. It's one thing to put out a statement, but it's hard for people to trust in that when everybody's kind of doing it. So Mm -hmm. I think just those like sustained, repeated attempts to connect with the community and have different voices elevated in your in your company. And I guess ultimately, as Sinead had mentioned previously, we're trying to keep it so the movement doesn't stagnate. But what would you where do you see this in five years from now? It's so hard to say because this came, I didn't expect this. I never thought this was going to happen. I didn't think this is, (laughs) I didn't think this is where we were going to be right now. Like, you know, like Mm -hmm. even a few months ago, you know, we're seeing 
the way that the pandemic has just once again sort of doubled down on people of color and minorities. I didn't, I just remember like, this is the time we've got to do something, but did I expect the whole world to sort of like, what feels like the whole world sort of wake up and say like, wow, we need to deal with this. Yeah, I never thought that would happen. So it's really interesting to think five years down the road, what what would happen. I think so long as businesses are really trying to implement these changes, support their employees and a greater cause other than just money, you know, I think that can make a world of a difference. I mean, some of the conversations I've had with people in my life that have been sort of like really eye-opening for them is wonderful. So I'm hoping that creates a lot of change. I mean, we saw like Ben Mulroney step down to create space for a person of color. So maybe we'll be seeing more representation. I think we're going to be really surprised where we can be, where we'll be if we can really keep this up. I think also now it's important for us to make decisions, especially in the U.S., with their time to vote coming up, making decisions that we can see benefit later generations sort of right now, thinking forward, what are the things we can do right now? So when it comes to political decisions now, kind of thinking of where we want to be in five years, Mm -hmm. but... I, I don't know. It's hard to say. I'm very hopeful, but it's it's I'm skeptical and I'm trying to be cautiously kind of skeptical. What's the word? Cautiously, cautiously optimistic. optimistic. <laughs> because, yeah, it, it's hard to say just this fresh like, well, is it all performative? We don't know. Mm. So um, it seems like a lot of people are taking this very seriously and that a lot of changes will be made. But, yeah, I hope to see a huge change. And I mean, for me personally, I, I feel like you already told me something that I didn't know about Canada, I wasn't aware that speaking about Indigenous issues was or could be linked into the Black Lives Matter movement. Personally, I had no idea that that was the case. So I would be curious how, you know, obviously we're seeing what's happening in the States and and we're going to feel that trickle down effect of, you know, those changes. Hopefully they're things that we experience here. But I'm, I'm curious what things you think are specific to Canada that we need to be making changes with, obviously, with the movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, but also with our Indigenous populations, if that's mm-hmm. linked together. Am I right to link that? You had made that? Um, I think, well, it's it's tricky. I think, yeah, I think there's room for everybody, you know what I mean, to have advocacy and support, definitely. I think, yeah, they could definitely sort of stand together. And because yeah. when you see B B-I-P-O-C, Black Indigenous People of Color, that's uh, sort of referencing everybody who's a person of color, you know, this systemic issues that really oppress every kind of person of color. Obviously, Canada, specifically Indigenous, I don't want to say specifically, but we know that in Canada that there is a huge issue with Indigenous rights and Indigenous erasure of Indigenous culture. Yeah, they definitely go hand in hand because if we're, I mean, for how long was was Canada trying to erase the history of residential schools and all of these other things, which is not unlike slavery sort of being erased and buried in the kind of understanding of Canadian history. So I definitely think that they could go together and, and, and sort of be part of the same fight. As you mentioned, you're a therapist here at Excel Therapy. What has been your experience with racial inequality in the mental health field? In my own experience in going to therapy, I've had a number of therapists never once ask about my experience, my racial experience. And then I started working with um, a mixed race therapist who really values that um, exploration of that area. Uh, changed my life. And so um, I see that it's not always top of mind. Also, mental health, we know that a lot of mental health is dedicated to getting people back to work, sort of been co-opted to sort of just heal people to a point and then, you know, push it down and off you go. I've seen it really not be considered a ton uh, in the mental health community. We know psychology can be a bit individualistic and kind of like you need to take control of your 
inner world, which is absolutely a part of it, but also what other systemic oppression exists that's also making everything much more difficult for our clients to flourish and thrive. And I think that really needs to be addressed. And some programs are definitely trying to integrate that a lot more. I know mine did at the Couple and Family Therapy Center. They did a great job of trying to keep that top, those conversations top of mind and have you explore them with clients and locate yourself with clients to hopefully just let them know that this is a safe space where you can explore that. We're definitely seeing a lot more of understanding of how systemic oppression impacts our family systems, our own experience in the world, and then our mental health. So is it is it fair to say bringing more of an ecological approach into into the counseling um, experience, like understanding where we're, things are happening at a micro level, meso or macro, yeah. like yeah. bringing that into therapy. Is that fair? Definitely. I think that's really important. It's all these layers that sort of compound to impact our individual experience. Mm-hmm. So I think exploring, yeah, everything at that, at, at all those different levels is so key to really sort of holistically getting to know yourself and, and your experience in the world, you know. So how do you incorporate that then, you know, with the insights that you've gained from going to therapy yourself and saying that those aren't conversations that were necessarily had with you when you originally started with whatever counselor you were with. For yourself, how do you broach that conversation, whether it is about race or whether there's another um, minority identity that, you know, you're seeing it in the room, a safe way and a respectful way to name that and how that might be impacting that person's experience? What would be your suggestion there? One thing I really uh, like to do is to locate myself in the first session and say, I'm biracial, kind of what I said at the beginning of this, and say, like, give my pronouns, whatever you're sort of comfortable sharing in that way, but just letting them know that this is kind of, here's who I am. And then sort of identifying the kind of things that you'd like to talk about. I would say, like, I really like to explore issues of race, ethnicity, your experience growing up in whatever town you grew up in, like maybe a small town or something like that, Um, just sort of like laying the groundwork to allow some space for them to feel like, okay, well, maybe this is something that I can bring up. Also, sometimes you just kind of throw it out there as a suggestion because you don't know. You really don't know how it's impacted them. So often you might have other clients with with a certain experience. You could say like, you know, I have other clients who experience sort of like what you're discussing as like maybe like gender roles. Do you see it that way? They either pick it up or not. And if they don't, then you move on and then maybe you can hold on to it if you really do feel like that's something there and bring it back later. But really just kind of just throwing out little touches that are very not, you're not assuming, you're just wondering. And um, that sometimes can be really fruitful. And that people, curiosity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. From my perspective as somebody who is slowly getting into the world of mental health and counseling, I'm curious how I can be cautious about making assumptions with my clients um, about what the reasons they might be in counseling. Um, Say, for example, they have a minority identity of some sort and not making the assumption that that must be part of the reason that they're coming to counseling. Because in one breath, I think that could be me trying to honor their um, their experiences because I'm recognizing that yeah. identity. But in the next breath, I think there's also a little bit of fear on my end that I don't want to make assumptions. So would you say, again, it's just that curiosity or how would you say the best way is to go about that? Yeah, that's. I think that's really, really, really tricky, you know, to be this individual person with your own experiences and your own idea of things and then to um, sort of balance those with what a client's bringing to you. I'd say, first, firstly, obviously, this is their hour, hour and a half, however long they're coming to you. Um, just having an idea of what they would like to do with the hour, you know, is I think the most important thing, being very client-centered and really trusting that your client 
knows what they'd like to focus on. Sometimes people don't know exactly like that they made that unfolds later that they'd like to discuss race or their sexuality. But I think really looking to the client to be an expert in their own experience and letting them guide it and also doing some work on your own to challenge your, any assumptions or ideas you have. You can always hold them as hypotheses, we say, but I do think it's important to investigate those hypotheses and kind of explore why we, why we have them in case they are sort of like there's other things kind of encroaching. Sometimes you just have, have worked with people or you have your own experience and it actually could be really valuable and it could really make sense for their story. But I think sort of just holding those and really being in tune when you feel like the right moment is to ask. It is tough to know when and how sometimes, but I think consulting with other people, doing peer supervision, uh, consulting with a supervisor if you have one, doing your own kind of research um, about maybe how people from that specific minority would like to be um, asked about this concern. But I think really just leaving room for it to unfold and throwing out some little like kind of touches here and there. And, and again, maybe just kind of saying like, this is how I've heard from other clients and it could be totally not your experience, but I am curious about um, you've mentioned this part of your sexuality. What can you tell me about your experience with that and getting curious and maybe trying to get to know their experience in more a fuller way? That too might also change your hypotheses and you might end up somewhere completely different than you yeah. thought you would be. So I think just being curious, exploring and getting to know your client and letting them take the lead and see kind of where you end up with that. I really like the idea of them being the expert though. That's, yeah, that's yeah. great advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Teresa, I know you mentioned before that there obviously has been many more before George Floyd, but why do you feel it's different today? Why is there this huge movement? Has is Do you think COVID is part of the reason, too, that a lot of people have been available and have been able to take on that portion and be able to join, I guess, in the movement as well? They don't have an excuse now, right, ultimately? Yeah, it's, it's a, such an interesting Thing. Let's just think about why it happened now. Um, I do want to just say I'm not an expert on all of this. It's just yeah, sort of like okay. my experience and kind of how I'm thinking about it. Obviously, in the U.S., we've seen, you know, Donald Trump and his uh, actions, uh, how they've been on un- sort of unfolding. And that's sort of, I think, been a lot of the catalyst for this. Uh, I think with, you know, seeing Barack Obama, I mean, what an amazing thing to have a black president. And then to kind of go straight into the exact opposite. Oh my gosh, there's this huge underbelly of white supremacy that we thought that we had dealt with, you know, because we had a black president. I think it's been jarring. I think it's thing, it's one thing after another. And I think it's a lot of people are feeling very impacted by it. And then to have this pandemic happen and we're all sort of shut in at home and the news is there and Trump's not slowing down in terms of his racism and the actions he's doing. And it's all in our face. Like, there it is. And yeah, we don't have the distractions as much as possible. Mm -hmm. We are sort of able to stop and listen and connect with the ones we love. And I think, yeah, people just sort of, it's right there. And what excuse do we have to hide behind now? Mm. I don't know. It was interesting the morning that that happened to George Floyd. It felt different. I mean, I felt so impacted by every death that's ever shown in the news. But immediately I saw the news and I thought, what? Like I just sort of dropped my phone and my partner was there and I was like, I can't understand. I don't know. Yeah, it was interesting just to feel that wave that I think a lot of people felt around the world in response to that. Like I don't even know what that was, but Mm -hmm. I felt it and I was like, okay, we got to do some things differently. And also the pandemic, it's completely obvious in my mind, the 
like I said before, the doubling down on people who are uh, of people of color and minority groups and how disadvantaged they are even in the pandemic. So I think that's been weighing on a lot of people too, you know, sort of in the U.S. seen as somewhat disposable, not sent with PPE into these essential jobs, you know, Mm -hmm. I used air quotes there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, So yeah, it's just been like laid bare, kind of here we are, here's where we are for real. Well, Teresa, thank you so much for being here today. I think I know I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience or our listeners have as well. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I mean, as much as I I feel not equipped or like the right person to be here, I appreciate you sort of lending this platform to like a person of color uh, and taking the time to have these important conversations. And I'm sure any listeners that become clients, this will be so valuable for them. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you absolutely loved what you heard, be sure to subscribe, share, and leave a review so we can keep showing up for you. If you aren't already following us on social media, check out at exhale.therapy on Instagram or our website at exhaletherapy.ca. Thank you for making you a priority and for exhaling with us. Until next week, know that you are resilient, you are enough, you matter, and most importantly, you are not alone.